But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up to attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for there are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed them, about thirty-six of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and will cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken, and he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, 
and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys, and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Heavenly Father, these are sobering words to consider. And I pray that we would learn from them, that you would give us insight and understanding so we might properly understand you, properly understand sin and its consequences, and truly that we might better understand what it means to live for you and for your glory. That is what we desire. We do not want to be a faithless people, but we want to be a faithful people who truly seek you with all of our heart and seek your name to be proclaimed and honored and worshipped throughout the whole world. And so I pray as we look at this text that you would give us understanding, understanding that is not accomplished by mere learning, but that that can only be accomplished through the power of your Spirit. So Spirit, please come. And do a work in us that will work, that would put us in a place to truly be useful for you. And for our hearts to treasure you as you deserve. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So, there's a very simple outline to this text. As you see in your in your um, bulletins, um, talk about sin and its consequences, Achan's sin, and then how Achan's sin is exposed, and then um, the trouble that comes upon Achan. And the the reason that last part is there, trouble comes from it's based off of the uh, Achan's name itself. Uh, Valley of Achor means Valley of Trouble. Achan and Achor, of course, are very similar. And so I was tempted to entitle the message, The Trouble with Sin. But um, I didn't. I think, just to be clear, the, the real purpose of this message is to highlight sin and its consequences. And I, I pray that that's what would stand out as we examine it today. Verse 1 of the text immediately introduces us to everything that's going to follow. We're given the reason for Israel's defeat, the source of the problem, and the consequence that results. And the reason Israel gets defeated at Ai is because, it says, Israel broke faith. 
Israel broke faith. The word means to act unfaithfully, to act treacherously. It is used actually to describe marital unfaithfulness, when a covenant has been made to deliberately break that covenant. Literally, the text actually says they were unfaithful with unfaithfulness. And there's this double emphasis on the unfaithfulness in the Hebrew. It it emphasizes that both the unfaithful intention as well as the unfaithful act. So Israel intended to do this. This was not accidental. And it was an unfaithful act in and of itself. Point being, Israel did not stumble into sin. This was something Israel deliberately did. And then it emphasizes also the source of the problem, which is Achan. In fact, the author is very quick. to This is what Israel did. But then we see that it wasn't the whole nation, but actually just one man that was unfaithful. And this is the reason for drawing out his genealogy. His sin has resulted in contaminating the whole. His whole family as well as all of Israel. And the principle that we should recognize here, as difficult as it may be, is that our sin usually affects far more than just ourselves. The consequences of one sin could affect hundreds, if not millions of people. Just consider the effects of Adam's sin. Or even David with Bathsheba and how that led to really the destruction of Of the nation of Israel and Judah. What did Achan do? It says that he took some of the devoted things. The Hebrew word is harem. And it means something that has been set apart for God. It is something that God wants to be set apart for himself. In most cases it refers to being set apart for sacred use. And the point is God has declared those things, the harem, to be his. And what you'll see as you read particularly the book of Joshua and other texts is that that which is harem has particularly been set aside for destruction. He chooses those things to be destroyed. The consequence of Achan's action then in taking the devoted things is that God's anger now burns against Israel. And the words anger and burning often Uh, are put in connection with one another in Scripture. Fire, we see, is often a symbol of God's wrath. And we see God being described throughout uh, Scripture as being a consuming fire, destroys that which is unholy. And so by taking these things that are devoted to destruction, Israel has set themselves apart To also be devoted to destruction along with those other things God intended to destroy. So Israel has put themselves in the place of God's destruction. So as if God had prepared this massive burn pile that he was going to destroy. And Israel then decided to sneak into it. Presuming that even if they were inside that burn pile, God would still not destroy them. But that's not the case. The consequences we see of such sin is narrated in the verses that follow. Look at verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, 
which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out I. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So this just simply narrates what happens as a result of what Achan does. Notice the, all these consequences. First, Israel is humiliatingly routed. Then, 36 men die unnecessarily. And just think of that. 36 men died as a result of what Achan did. And then, of course, Israel's response is their hearts melt like water when this happened. In short, bad things happen. And when bad things happen because of sin, who feels that the most? The leaders. Notice Joshua and the elders' response. Verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. So we see as Joshua and the other elders come before God and they humble themselves in great mourning. And like any good leader, he feels personally responsible. And you see that in his prayer. He doesn't blame the soldiers despite their defeat, nor does he try to exonerate himself. He simply goes to the Lord hoping for some sort of clarification or some sort of guidance or at least an explanation for what happened. In essence, what he prays is, God, why did you allow this defeat? What did I do wrong? What did we do wrong? And there's a good chance the people and his soldiers are asking the same question. The text does not say this, but Maybe they're tempted to question the quality of Joshua's leadership at this point. Or maybe they're going to question the courage or the aptitude of the soldiers who tried to take the city. But we know, of course, that the problem has nothing to do with that or what one might naturally assume. The problem wasn't in the soldiers. The problem wasn't in Joshua. The problem was that they were up against the wrath of God. They've become like the Canaanites. And that's why their hearts melt. He actually goes one step further than what we see how we saw the Canaanites being described when they heard about the Israelites coming. It says their hearts melted like water. God explains in verse 12, it's because they've become a people devoted to destruction. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. So besides losing the battle, 36 men and their courage, we see also that God's honor is threatened. And this is immediately what concerns Joshua more than the defeat itself. He says in verse 8, O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies 
the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. And they'll surround us and cut us off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Just consider this. God's honor is more threatened by sin in Israel than in Israel being defeated. God's honor is more threatened by sin in Israel than in Israel being defeated. The inverse is also true. God is more glorified in our holiness than he is in our success. God is more glorified in our holiness, our pursuit of righteousness, our pursuit of Christ-likeness, than he is in our success. That is why God would allow for those people to be destroyed as they sought to seek I, rather than just directly addressing Achan. God was more concerned about holiness in the people of Israel than he was about them just winning every battle. In Jeremiah chapter 9, after pronouncing the horrible judgment that's coming upon the nation because they refuse to repent, this is what Jeremiah says in verse 23. It's worth looking at it. Some of you may be familiar with it. Jeremiah chapter 9. says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. His point is that what most people boast in, what most people delight in, these earthly successes, wisdom or might, which could mean power or strength or ability, and riches, is not what we should boast in. Not because it's wrong to boast. That's not the point. But because when God's judgment comes upon the land in Jeremiah's time, Because Israel has rebelled against the Lord, when God's judgment comes upon the land, those things which they have boasted in, which they've had confidence in, will do them no good. That's his point. When judgment comes, these things which you boasted in will be no comfort to you. They'll do you no good. Likewise, what good is there in boasting about Jericho or what you might have gained from it when that has brought you under the wrath of God. Those things will bring you no comfort. So it's not that just that God is more glorified in our holiness than in our success, but also that we are more safe, more secure, and more successful in our holiness than in our success. We're more safe, secure, and successful in our holiness than in our success, than in our wisdom, than in our might or our riches. Bottom line, Israel's failure was because of sin and no other reason. 
But notice what God says in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. So it's interesting. Verse 11 calls Israel again, not just Achan, but all of Israel, both sinners and transgressors. One commentator said the rest of the indictment enlarges upon the act, calling it concealment, theft, deceit, and finally selfishness. And then in this entire indictment, it repeatedly emphasizes Israel's corporate guilt because of what Achan did. And verse 12 is particularly illuminating. God explains they turn their backs before their enemies because they become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Again, it's that word harem, those things devoted to destruction. And here it's used both to describe the things that Israel took as well as Israel itself. Taking something devoted to destruction has made Israel devoted to destruction. And God explains to Joshua, unless those things, the harem, is taken and destroyed, along with those who took them, Israel will remain devoted to destruction themselves. So what we've noted so far, in summary, we've seen many consequences to what Achan decided to do. Israel's utterly defeated, humiliatingly. 36 men die. God has completely been dishonored. Which Israel should have cared more about than actually the loss itself. And then the whole nation, including Joshua, presently stand devoted to destruction. Because of what Achan did. So horrible consequences. Which begs the question... What should we do then when we become aware of our sin and its consequences? Well, notice what Joshua, what God says to Joshua. Get up. In summary, he says, get up, Joshua, and deal with the problem. Point is, mourning is not as appropriate here as repentance. Mourning over sin should happen. That's good. But when God explains to Joshua what the problem is, now it's Joshua's time to get up and deal with the problem. And here we're instructed in how to respond to sin. That grief isn't enough. In fact, most people grieve over their sin, especially when they feel its consequences. But true grief, godly grief, leads to repentance. And this is, this is Paul's point in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, as he explains to the Corinthians, beginning at verse 7, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 7, beginning at verse 10, he says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So what does this godly grief look like? Verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. 
but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So Paul is saying is true godly grief. When one understands the horrific nature of sin, they don't just think, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. The effect it has on them is a passion to clear themselves, to right whatever wrong was done. This, it produces a fear, a zeal, an indignation, a hatred for the sin itself. And so God's point to Joshua here is get up and deal with the sin. In other words, repent. So God tells Joshua what steps he should take so that he can identify who the culprit is, where the source of the sin is, and so that repentance can actually be accomplished. And what he tells him to do is gather the whole nation before me. And tribe by tribe, family by family, I'll eventually through Lot, probably through the Urim and Thummim, I will identify who has brought this guilt upon the nation. We have then Achan's sin exposed in verses 16 through 21. Verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly, I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So what God does in bringing every, all of Israel before him, he eventually whittles down the tribe and Achan's eventually identified as the one who transgressed the covenant. And, and we see that Achan knew what he had done wrong. This was not some sort of accident. that He didn't just hear what... Forget, he didn't just not hear the command that God gave. There's no excuse for what he did. And we see that because he went and tried to cover up his sin. He, he in fact, dug a hole in his tent where nobody could see him digging and, and put it underneath his tent and buried it. Another thing this action shows us is that Achan assumed that getting caught in the sin would have been worse than the sin itself. And that's where he was deadly wrong. And anytime you feel like you need to hide something that you have done, the reality is you have much more to fear than getting caught. You should fear your ignorance of what holding on to the sin is actually going to do. You should fear your hard-heartedness, hard-heartedness, because you're clearly not in a 
good spot spiritually if you would try to hide your sin. Likewise, you should fear your blatant disregard regard for God and his honor. There is far more to fear when you seek to cover up your sin and hide your sin than getting caught. Hiding sin is to coddle sin. It's the opposite of repentance. A sin hidden is a sin held onto. And of course, this doesn't mean that you need to tell everybody every time you sin. But if you're actively trying to hide your sin from someone, you are declaring by your actions. And remember, actions speak louder than words. You are declaring by your actions that that sin is more important to you than the glory of God. If you're actively trying to hide sin, you're declaring that it is more important to you than the glory of God. And notice how Joshua confronts Achan, verse 19. Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. Joshua is pleading with Achan to right the wrong that he has done here. But recognize, there's no plea bargaining happening. Joshua's not saying, if you confess, there won't be any more consequences for you. So just fess up first. And we'll make this easier on everybody. That's not what's happening. What Joshua is saying is he's simply calling Achan to restore the honor of God that was tarnished in what Achan did. He's not offering him a way out of his punishment. The punishment has to remain because in taking what was devoted to the Lord, Achan has already, already devoted himself to destruction. The consequence cannot be removed. That has to take place. Parents, most of all of you, if not all of you, have had to confront your child at some point in a known sin that they've committed and call them to confess. And Joshua's words here give us guidance in what we should be aiming at in such a conversation with our children. Give glory to God and give praise to Him. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. What our children need to understand is their great Their greatest concern in sinning against the Lord is not the consequences that will result from their being caught, but the dishonor that that sin brought to God. Our children need to understand that what's far worse is the sin itself, not the consequences. And one of the ways they will show an understanding of this is by willingly accepting the consequences for their sin. The way that our children, and likewise us, demonstrate that we really understand how horrible sin is, is when we're willing to accept the consequences of that sin. And Achan, you see, does make a full confession of his sin. He even declares where the items have been hidden. 
But again, this doesn't mean that he can eliminate the consequences. So I think the question we should ask ourselves is, do we hate sin so much that we are willing to acknowledge that we deserve the consequences of it? And again, it also gives clarity to what it means to give glory to God. To give glory to God in response to sin is to acknowledge sin and accept its consequences. There are many people in the world that say they live for the glory of God. They know the Westminster Shorter Catechism answer that what, it, what does it mean to glorify God? Or what's the purpose of our life? It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And they will say that. And they will talk about all the different things they do for the glory of God. But are they willing to repent like Achan, even if it still means they will have to face the consequences for their sin? To glorify God means that you value his reputation more than your own. That's what Joshua's getting at here when he says, give glory to God and give praise to him. Bring God his honor back. Acknowledge what you've done, Achan. Achan glorified God by accepting the destruction of his name so that the honor of God's name would be restored. And that leads us to verse 22. Achan's trouble. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, It was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And the key word in this section is seen in verse 25. It's the word trouble. A core that the valley is named after. And this word in scripture can be translated disaster or trouble. I like disaster. It's used in Genesis to describe the effects of Simeon and Levi's uh, attack and massacre of the um, city of Shechem. When Jacob said to Simeon and Levi in verse 30, Genesis 34, 30, he says, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. The words also again used in this interaction between Ahab and Elijah as they ex- uh, exchange uh, charges, each claiming the other is to be held responsible for the drought that's come upon Israel, claiming you're the one that's brought on this trouble. And the other says, no, you've brought this trouble. The trouble being the drought, this natural disaster. Proverbs eleven twenty nine tells us that a 
person can bring trouble on his own household, like Achan. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind, and the fool will be the servant to the wise of heart. And so when Joshua asks, why have you brought this trouble on us? What he's doing is he's pointing out all the consequences of the attack on I are the result of what Achan did. By taking the devoted things, Achan has brought disaster upon Israel. His actions have resulted in making Israel, all of Israel, devoted to destruction. Putting him in the path of God's wrath. And since he's brought this trouble to them, he shall have this trouble brought onto himself. And all that he has, including his family. And this is a contrast to what happened to Rahab in the previous chapter. You look at the previous chapter, look at verse 25, it says, But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. Joshua and Israel had delivered Rahab and her family from a Jericho that had perished among the devoted things. Now Achan would perish among the devoted things and thereby deliver Joshua and Israel from the divine destruction. Once these devoted things are devoted to destruction, then God's anger ceases. Likewise, if we truly care about the glory of God, we will devote ourselves to destroying sin in our lives. You guys, I'm sure, are familiar with John Owen's quote where he says, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And the point is, when we treat sin lightly and fail to deal with it seriously, it shows we do not truly fear the Lord. Taking sin lightly shows we do not have a fear of the Lord. I encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 29. In verse 13, it gives insight. Isaiah makes this pronouncement in Isaiah 29:13. He says, "And the Lord said, because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, saying, because this is how Israel comes to me, I am going to bring judgment upon this nation. And his point here is that their fear of him is not real. In fact, it's something that needs to be taught. That's his, when he says, it's a commandment taught by men. It's, it, would, it would be like saying to a child, son, you need to fear this hungry, roaring lion that's two feet in front of you. A child at that point should look up at their father and say, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard, Dad. 
Of course I fear him. You don't need to tell me I should fear him. I'm terrified. But God's response is, fear something is he taught when it should be natural. And so because they don't fear him and they just honor them with their mouth and their lips and their hearts are far from me. This nation is under judgment. So in regard to sin, what does it look like to truly fear the Lord? That's the main question. We look at this chapter that we should ask ourselves. What does it really look like to fear the Lord and care about his glory? Well, here's some points just taken in summary from what we've seen already in Joshua 7. First of all, we don't blame others when we sin. Rather, we humbly acknowledge full responsibility in doing wrong. And this is a common tendency. Um, every, almost every time I think I get convicted of sin, my most immediate response in my mind is to blame somebody else. I wouldn't have done this unless it was somebody else's fault. Maybe Aiken was thinking that. If only my dad would have given me a greater inheritance, I wouldn't have had to steal. Or if only Joshua would have made the commands a little bit more clear, then I wouldn't have done what I've done. But truly fearing the Lord is acknowledging our full responsibility in doing wrong. Or blaming others We don't get it. Likewise, we will grieve our sin as much as the other challenges in our life. We will grieve our sin as much as the other challenges in our life. If we truly fear the Lord and care about his glory. And as we grieve, our grief should be conjoined with immediate repentance we truly grieve our sin, we will do whatever we can to stop sinning, to get ourselves out of the way of sin, to put up a hedge of protection around ourselves, or to simply make it right and acknowledge it in confession. Which is another thing we should do. We should never seek to hide our sin, but confess it. If you're tempted to hide your sin, that is a red light, lights going off, Indicator, you should go and confess to the person you're attempting to hide your sin from. That is your conscience, guided by the Holy Spirit, telling you this is what you should do in regard to this sin. If you truly care about my glory and have a fear of the Lord. So we would never seek to hide our sin, but confess. Likewise, we will seek to kill sin in our lives never coddling it, never justifying it, killing it. We will also willingly acknowledge that we deserve the full consequences of our sin. That we deserve the full consequences of our sin. We would never try to plea bargain if we truly understand what we did and what the consequences of it are. And the reality of this Everybody here has not experienced fully what they deserve in regard to sin. And I think, really, that's why 
we tend to think of sin lightly. Because we don't experience what we deserve, we usually don't experience what we deserve. We usually don't really feel the consequences of our sin, maybe just touches of it. God is so merciful to both believers and unbelievers that we begin to just presume upon that mercy. But if we really fear the Lord and we care about His glory, we will acknowledge we do deserve all the consequences of our sin. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, if we truly understand sin and care about the glory of God, we will treasure the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because what this is going to teach you, if you recognize it, is you have no hope outside of what Jesus Christ did for you. There is no other way to be cleansed from your sin. This should draw you to treasure Christ all the more. To love Him and what He's purchased for you, the forgiveness that He's given you. But at the same time, it doesn't give us this freedom to just think of sin lightly. That just because now we know that we've been forgiven, the worst response would be to therefore go in sin that grace might abound. Because the reality is, even though we might not taste the wrath of God because of Jesus Christ's um, work on the cross, we are forgiven. There's no condemnation. The consequences of sin are still real. The consequences of sin still happen. Both our consequences and we feel the consequences of other people's sin. And if we care about the glory of God, we truly love Jesus Christ, we will do everything in our life to get sin out of our lives. We will apply all these things that were just mentioned. If we truly understand what Jesus Christ has done for us, we would not take sin lightly we would take it all the more seriously. And so, I think it's a good place to close. Let us go to the Lord in prayer and sing of the great grace of Jesus Christ in our life. Truly, Father, we have no hope before You outside of Jesus. For our sin is great. All of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory millions of times. And we do think of sin lightly. And we truly, none of us do these things well. But we want to, Father. We want to correct our light understanding of sin so that we would rid sin in our lives through the power of Christ in us. But also so that we would really understand what Jesus has done for us, that we would treasure Him even more. That we would be both a more holy people but also a more worshipful people. And we ask for these things not because we deserve them, hardly, but because we desire them. And we desire you to be glorified, not just in what we do, but in the deepest recesses of our heart. We ask these things in Christ's name.